Welcome to Motherhood Exposed. Join me, Zoe Cresswell, mum of two and a UK-trained midwife and doula, as I meet with an array of amazing women navigating life and motherhood. Since becoming a mum for the second time, after my own complex journey, I've become more and more aware that motherhood is so unique. There's no one story the same, and women need support now more than ever. I hope by allowing mothers to openly speak out, we can help to break the silence around many topics. We need to shout out that there is no normal, and that is something we need to embrace. Motherhood isn't always picture perfect, so let's bust some myths, realign expectations, and share the journey together. For today's guest, I feel like I'm introducing the Queen. I'm delighted to speak with doula extraordinaire Kiki Hampstead. Kiki has been a doula for a whopping 18 years, trained hundreds of women to become doulas themselves, supported hundreds more families at the birth of their babies, written several books, and is now the force behind the hashtag But Not Maternity campaign. As the UK is in the second week of its second lockdown, I speak to Kiki about why the But Not Maternity petition has to keep going. Family, women and babies are suffering as a result of the restrictions in place and this has to stop. Since we recorded last week, more information has been revealed about a staggering 20% rise in babies being killed or harmed in the months of the first UK lockdown. This cannot happen again. Listen to what Kiki has to say and find out how you can help. Hi Kiki, how are you? Hello Sarah, I'm very well, thank you. Good. So we've had a little bit of a pre-chat, but um, you're all wrapped up there, nice and nice and warm, while I'm in my vest top in the in the blistering heat. So yes, I'm slightly slightly jealous where you are in the in the in the warm sunshine, and uh, we're just going into lockdown and winter here. I in the know. UK. So the second day of lockdown 2.0. Mm-hmm. Sorry, we're sending our love from Dubai. I promise. <laughs> Uh, and a, bit of heat, a bit of heat as well if we can <laughs> <laughs> I wish so um Kiki I tend to start my podcast with the same question and um, which everyone will know now which is um how did you meet your husband oh that's very that's interesting <laughs> yes so, so I grew up in a small village in the north of Sweden uh, Swedish Lapland actually and there were I think we had a population at the time about three thousand people, so <gasps> very, tiny. very, very tiny. Yeah, but also the the area of the whole kind of well of of the town was probably the same size as London. So imagine you have a big area with only three thousand people. So hence we were very spread out wow. in the village, actual village. I think there was about fifteen hundred. But anyway, that's where I grew up, and they had we did a lot of sports. We do a lot of sport in Sweden football ice hockey horse riding well all the normal stuff uh, and um, we had a football team and someone so this is going back to the 80s so this player <laughs> you're called not you're Vinnie, not that old definitely not. no i am but this player <laughs> called called vinnie jones which you might have heard of who's now a movie star in hollywood <laughs> wow he, yeah so this is that's is why this is so weird so he he came over to play football in a town, bigger town on the coast called Formsund. And he was there playing football. And at that same club was someone from my little town also playing football. And my little town said, oh, we would like someone in our team like Vinnie Jones to come and play for our little team here. Obviously we can't pay. I mean, he wasn't a professional at the time. I was semi-pro or something. So anyway, Vinnie Jones goes back to England and he's friends with my husband's back then they grew up in the same place and he says to him casually do you want to go and play football in sweden and my husband lance goes yeah why not i'll do that <laughs> so he came over <laughs> so he came over to play football for my little town orsula uh, and he was there for a month and that's how i met him and i was only 16 at the time and he was a much older um and um yeah, that's how we met. And then we were rich, literally writing to each other for three years because I was going off to upper secondary school. So I was moving from home, 
hundred miles away to this big town where wow. Vinnie Jones was playing football. Uh, and yeah, so we were just exchanging letters and very expensive phone, call, phone calls. I mean, this was 1987 that I met him. So wow. um, yeah, and then when I finished school, I said, you know, I'm going to have a gap year and just go over to England. Uh, we weren't even the EU, you know, I had to register for alien registration. Oh, and what did your family what, think about you going? Well, I was 19, off I went, my, I've got the best family. I mean, they, they, yeah, they just said, okay, off you go. <laughs> I was meant to come back um, and I'm still here 30 years later. No, so. that's it. You, you came and you never left. <gasps> oh, wow. And where did you, like, did you stay with him? Did you stay nearby? Oh, yeah. So we are living in still, yeah, in the same. Well, we lived in Kings Langley. Now we're in Abbots Langley. So literally they're two little um, villages next to each other. Well, they're not so small. They've got, you know, over 10,000 people in each of them. But um, yeah, so we have lived here. I've lived here since, yeah, 1990 when I moved here. My word. Gosh. I know. So 30 years. Oh, yes. That's a long time. Gosh. It is a long time. We've been married for 20 three years wow i'm trying to do my math so when did um your first child daughter you've got two children two girls haven't you yeah two girls yeah when she did was they born in 98 so one year after we got married we had our first daughter and then wow. in 2000 we had our second but we had been together for 10 years i was like yeah, we, we went we went traveling together for a few months, backpacking, and we, that was kind of a pre-marriage thing. If we could stand each other backpacking together for three months after having been together for nine years and lived <laughs> together for the time, we, yeah, so, yeah. So it was, was it a romantic proposal then when you got to the end of the three months, right, that's it, let's go get hitched? He had actually proposed before. So yeah, we went, we went traveling after the proposal. It was like our honeymoon before we got married. Nice. So that was it. Do it that way around. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> and how were your, um, your pregnancies and births? Well, I was very, very, I'm not going to say lucky, but I was, I'm going to say I was quite naive. So I, I wasn't scared at all. I was very excited getting pregnant. Um, couldn't quite believe it. Like I think most women think, oh, it's actually happened. <laughs> I actually got pregnant. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in that sense, I was lucky because um, I know many women struggle with that. Uh, and then my pregnancy was fine. I had no, the only thing I noticed was that I could smell really well. My sense of smell was so heightened. You know, you can literally smell something in the other room. I think my mom had a plug in mosquito thing in the yeah. house. And I was like, what is that smell? And she's like, <laughs> I don't know. And it was, it was in another room. And then, yeah, when I, um, I, I think my mom actually bought me a book, a, a Swedish book translated from english because it was sheila kitzinger who had written oh, really? <laughs> so how funny was that i mean out of all the books that yeah. was the book she brought me so i read that and i can't even remember what it was called but it, it was about being pregnant and childbirth and then yeah when i um went into labor about three days before the due date i my waters broke which was quite unusual. Was this in the UK or did you go home? Yeah, in the UK. So we yeah. were living here. So I was here. My waters broke in the middle of the night and I literally heard this pop like a... Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah, it was really weird. Uh, and I remember just getting up, going... I went to the bath. For some reason, I climbed into the bath because there was so much water coming out. <laughs> and my husband was literally down the stairs with the bags in each hand going, come on, quick, we have to get to the hospital. <laughs> and this bearing in mind this is before i'd done any training like to become a doula work in the birthing world so mm -hmm. that my all i knew was what i've read that sheila kitzinger had written and i said i don't think we really need to go yet um but we rang the hospital went in was sent home because i wasn't having contractions and literally that night when we got in i started having these cramps and it was about two o'clock in the morning and it was pitch black dark it's may um he my husband was asleep next to me and i was literally i am not joking having contractions going back to sleep in between oh, in the dark and i was saying to him 
look how long is it we need to time these and it's like oh no don't worry it's fine I'm going back <laughs> just, yeah. just making sure he gets his 40 weeks <laughs> i know uh and then i remember literally this was only a few hours later so this was two o'clock in the morning by 5 30 i was feeling really quite unwell and i was losing it and i remember like my husband said what's wrong with you I'm crawling on the stairs. I was being sick. Oh, no. And I said, I have to ring. I need to ring the hospital. And I rang them again. And this is what happens to so many women. I said, look, I think I've just been sick. I feel, I'm sure I feel like I want to push. And the midwife said, uh, is it your first baby? And I said, yes, the first, my first baby. But I really, I think I should probably be coming in. And she went, oh, well, I better, I guess you better come in then. Like that. Yeah. And I am. I was in the car pushing all the way oh. to the hospital, got in the corridor and the, she was born literally 20 minutes later. Amazing. That's how to do it. <laughs> no, but the thing was, what got me through was that I kept thinking it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. I just, you know, it, it was weird. I think I actually had the optimal environment, you know, for the, for physiological birth because I was in a dark bedroom. It was just me, my husband yeah yeah there was no adrenaline from my husband at all because he was just <laughs> yeah. out. And, and and i was just thinking oh it's gonna get worse and just fell asleep i literally remember sleeping in between that's it's incredible so and when i look back now it's just really weird wow so that was my first labor so the second one was you know pretty you much the same did you cough and, and out she came yeah <laughs> i did say i did second time around i rang up and i said look i'm I've just started having contractions. I'm going to have a shower and I'm coming in. And that was it. I didn't let them, the midwife say. Good for you. Anything. Yeah. I just said, I'm coming. And then she was born a couple of hours after we got in. But remember, I was showering, getting in the car and fine until I got there. And then she, I was probably, yeah, it was pretty quick. Wow. And how's about the first or few months with the, your first new baby? Oh, that was hard. <laughs> So talking about how the birth was so kind of straightforward, uh, breastfeeding was, you know, becoming from Sweden when everyone's breastfeeds, it was just like, it was so strange when I, I didn't even realize that you wouldn't or couldn't breastfeed. That's, what that was it is like in the, in the UK and what's 98 you're saying? 90, yeah, 98. Uh, well, there were no birth centers. There was only labor wards, uh, breastfeeding, I didn't even, do you know, I was so like, I, that's the only thing I can say. I was just like, well, I'm breastfeeding and the baby came out and I literally put her like, well, you know, trying to position her on the, on the breast or mm -hmm. she was skin to skin with me and she just latched on and that was it. It that's was literally, yeah, I didn't really think that there could be problems. It's like only having that work for 18 years as a doula and seeing all the, 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 the issues and problems. But I think, I don't know, maybe my, I had the perfect, I, I just thought I had the perfect breasts for breastfeeding. And I <laughs> thought, this is, you know, do you know what I mean? It's yeah, just, yeah. Uh, and she just latched on and I was like, hmm, great. So, but, so that was fine. But what was really, really tough postnatally was just the overwhelm of how big it all felt. You know, I was in hospital for three days which it wouldn't be now, but I was shown how to bath the baby, you know, how to dry and, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. It was very mm -hmm. detailed. How to, so I went home feeling really confident looking after my, my baby, but she was what I would call a high maintenance baby. So, you know, the first obviously week was okay. Uh, you feel all over the place. I remember crying coming home on the third day when obviously my milk was coming in, uh, which I didn't, no, I know that now. And it, it just felt so overwhelming. I was sore. I'd had some stitches. Uh, and it was, that was hard. Um, but then what the lack of sleep, you know, the lack of sleep, having to feed a lot, which you do. Mm -hmm. But also if I'd had a bit more knowledge at this point, that probably would have helped of knowing what was normal. You see, I never... I was very much just waking up every day and doing the best I, I could. But slowly into when she was probably three, four, about three weeks, four weeks, she, she started having this crying 
you know, fit. So I wouldn't say a fit, but she was, you know, she was projectile vomiting. She was crying. She was unsettled and it was so, so hard. I mean, I couldn't put her down. You know, when you have a baby, then all your friends put their babies down and they're lying there on a blanket, all happy. Never in a million years would mm-hmm. Lucy do that. So that was hard. And I think I was quite a control freak as well. Like I like to be organized and have things in order and I couldn't get anything done. You know, that's, I, my, that's my, really hard when you can't get things done. It. You know, this, this sense of achieving. Yeah. But it's I also I think, like what, what, what you normally do. And you're like, why can't I just do what I normally do um, with, the yes. baby, with the baby with me? You know, they just tag along that's and I'll carry on with life. And it doesn't really work like that, does it? Exactly. And I think that's what I learned massively was that the, the struggle wasn't of the situation because it just was, it was what it was, mm-hmm. you know, but my struggle was with not wanting it to be like that and to get to a point where it wouldn't be like that anymore, you know, to get back to normal, you know, yeah. that, oh, I just want to get to back to normal. Or, I just wanted to sleep through the night or I just wanted to get over this. Uh, and it was, it was really, really tough. And it was only because I mean, I had help, but the help I wanted wasn't necessarily someone to come and hold the baby and clean my house. And it was more, I wanted someone to yeah, do those things, but also talk to me about how it was normal to feel like that, that lots of women go through that kind of matrescence or whatever you want to call it, this transitioning into motherhood and that it was normal to feel like you weren't doing a good job. And that also you can't be perfect. You know, there's no such thing as the as a pe- perfect parent, even though I think I was also thinking that my daughter was sad. That's and hard. It, That's really yeah, hard. Because, you know, crying, when you cry, you cry when you're sad, when you're in pain, but babies don't. That's mm-hmm. the thing I wish someone had said. Babies cry because babies cry. Because they communicate. <laughs> that's, that's how they exactly. communicate. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that that was some of the things. But I was very lucky. I had a health visitor in the days where health visitors actually were able to come and see everyone that had babies. I mean, it's not the case anymore. <laughs> no. Uh, and she she said i'll come once a week and, and really do. i know she came once a week for probably i'd say probably six weeks and i'd be crying and saying it's so hard i hate this and when is it going to get better and she just said mm, i know mm, yeah I, it's tough <laughs> you know that was all uh and then she said you know there will be light at the end of the tunnel you know it will get easier and guess what it did because I stopped that kind of need to control and to get things done and accepted that this is this, I should focus on this, this Mm -hmm. time now, Mm -hmm. because it does go so quickly. You know, the baby time's gone, six weeks gone, just like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, that, I think, I think that's why motherhood is such amazing thing or parenthood, because it really can make you grow as a person. If you just, are if you have the support and you're able to talk about how you're feeling and then reflect on why you are, what is the actual problem here? Is it the baby? No, I really wanted the baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it wasn't that, that. Is it the, what I'm thinking it should be like and my expectation of motherhood, that's the problem. Yes. Motherhood isn't usually, you know, walking down the road with your baby in the pram, going for coffee with your friends. Yeah. You know, it's more like, it's more like you start your walk and then halfway your baby cries so much that you have to pick the baby up, carry it home and push the pram home and then think I'm never going out again. <laughs> I always like the, um, the joke of um, my neighbours doing the school run um, last year when Sybil was a little, uh, really tiny because I'd just be like, they're like taking the pram for a walk again, are you? I'm like, yeah, pram's coming for a walk, Sybil's on my arm <laughs> in the carrier. <laughs> Oh dear. So was it your, um, do you think it was your experience of early motherhood that got you into being a doula? Definitely. Definitely. I've read about, so so my children were two and four. I mean, it's obviously easy when you have a second child because you know what to expect and you know, usually that it gets better. You've had that experience. I'm knowing it's really, it can be really hard in the beginning, but it gets better. And then I've read about doulas in a Sunday magazine and it was that that person that was non-judgmental that would come around and just help you with whatever you needed help with so that you could focus and learning how to be a mum the way you want to be a mum 
and to come with that all reassurance because i think when you you don't know what's normal do you what what is a normal baby meant to be doing mm -hmm. is my baby being normal you know i had a high maintenance baby first time around that cried a lot second time around a baby that didn't cry just fed slept fed slept and i was like worried both times yeah. you know there's something wrong with this baby crying all the time or oh, i'm really worried about this baby not crying all the time so it's just it, i think that that was what i wanted to bring so yeah that's definitely what brought me to being a doula and can you describe um i guess what a doula does so i would say a doula is a person that provides um, you know informational emotional and practical support to parents before, during and after childbirth. So I know that's quite a <laughs> mouthful, but doulas are your, it's not a new thing. It's something that's always existed. You know, women have always had support from someone, usually women when they have babies and they still do in many cultures. It's that village of women that have experienced or not necessarily even experienced childbirth, but are caring and, and wanting to support this big transition, you know, and it's really what makes childbirth so straightforward is that emotional support. And we have so many studies to show that, you know, that having a birthing partner is so, so important. And when that person is a doula, it makes an even bigger difference because of the emotional and informational support that they can provide. Um, so I think what's happened in the medical model is that of course you have to look after the medical side of things 100 you know and that's what's so brilliant that we do have that but we mustn't lose that emotional support it, especially for, for for all everyone in, in, in who's unwell but mm -hmm. you're not unwell when you're pregnant you know you're going through a process but that that you know compassion and kindness is what makes us heal and makes us go through childbirth easily because it produces those hormones that we need. And I think we, we, we put in far too little emphasis on the importance of having someone that is actually literally there to love you while you have a baby, you know, not just like your husband or partner, but also someone that really looks out for you and ensures that you feel part of the whole process. Mm -hmm. I've seen you um, describe it before as a professional handholder. Um. I have. <laughs> and, and, and that's what, if you don't understand why that makes such a huge difference and you, you'd have to read some books on oxytocin and understand the, the, the oxytocin, the hormone, uh, uh, it's not just a hormone, it's a, it's a neurotransmitter too. It's, it's one of the most kind of underestimated hormones in our bodies for well-being, for, for all those things. And holding someone's hand produces that oxytocin. Can you, because um, obviously I know you're extremely passionate about the physiology of childbirth. Can you, can you talk about a little bit about that and explain to other people what that Absolutely. is? Absolutely. Yeah, so birth physiology is such a big secret, I call it, because you have every, <laughs> it's so frustrating because why are we not learning this at school? No, exactly, exactly. It's, it's, not, it's not complicated. In your biology or in your sex education, whatever you have, it's so straightforward. Even you can have books for, you know, five-year-olds, they understand it. And they probably are, but they will be about animals and farm animals. Mm -hmm. so, so basically, a physiological process is something that happens in your body without you having to think about it. And it's also usually connected with reproduction or survival. So breathing, coughing, sneezing, um, ovulation, sleeping, um, turning food into energy and getting rid of the waste. All those things are physiological. And so is childbirth. So every female person is born with the ability to give birth. So if you're in a coma, your body will give birth if, if you're pregnant because it's a process that happens without your thinking brain. And because we see, we, we know this, well, what, if you work on a farm, you know very well not to disturb any animal that's having their calves or their, their lambs. We know to keep, keep it quiet, not to shine bright lights, not to go up and disturb the process. Because we know that if we startle or scare that mammal, you know, they will start producing 
perhaps adrenaline, which will cause them to slow down labor and it'd be more complications. Mm -hmm. And this is actually what happens in our bodies too. So we need to be in an environment where we're well supported and safe. So we can produce the oxytocin, which makes your uterus contract, but also helps as a pain medication for you. Also that releases uh, endorphins in your body, which makes it manageable. But the environment is crucial for this because if like mammals, they can stop labor to go away somewhere safe if they feel there's a predator near, our bodies react the same. So I'm saying reacting because it's not, you can't control it. You mm -hmm. cannot, you know, very well, if you're, you know, very lying in a bath, relaxing, um, you know, with candles and, you know, you have lots of oxytocin in your body because you're feeling good. It's, it's a calm and connect hormone. And then you hear a noise that scares you immediately. It's like millisecond switch. You will be, what was that? Yeah. And you will not be relaxed anymore. Heart's you, racing. Exactly. All those things, the adrenaline, the fight or flight or freeze or whatever reflex you're, you're responding to that influx of, of uh, adrenaline. And that is what people don't know, that it doesn't matter if you go to the most technological hospital in the world with all the bleeping machines and stuff, because unless you feel safe in the environment and trust that you're going to be fine, you're going to struggle with the, the oxytocin. Mm -hmm. It's not always just that too. When I talk about birth physiology, yes, that's one thing about the environment, being well supported, feeling part of the process, listened to, being kindly treated, but it's also everything else that you've experienced in your life because your physiology is also dependent on your kind of internal image or picture or what you're telling yourself about things you know you can think about you know top athletes can think about being in a running and their heart rate will go up yeah. it's like they can affect their physiology by yeah. the way you think so you see that's the other thing it's the same in childbirth so for, for some women it might not be possible to ever feel safe enough to produce enough of the hormones you need for it to be a physiological birth. For some women, the choice of, you know, having uh, pain medication is it's or, or even electing for a cesarean birth, all those things are very valid. But only each woman or birthing person will know that by going through a process of thinking about what kind of birth do I want, yeah, uh, and what are the pros and cons of those different options. Mm -hmm. And so, if you were to give uh, like a few top tips of how to help support a physiological birth what what would they be well i the Big top question. tips yeah <laughs> but i think you have to find, you have to be really really honest with yourself and think about what kind of a person you are and what kind of a birth you you and this like see yourself having uh for you and your baby but and then also investigate discover what if, if you say, oh, I want to definitely have an elective cesarean because I think there will be less trauma, that's not a guarantee. Let's go and have a look at that first. So what is it, the pros and cons of that for you and for your baby and mm -hmm. afterwards for your recovery? And then you make an informed choice. No one else can make that. You know, you might have people saying, oh, I don't think you should do that. Or even a doctor advising against it. But you want to know why. Uh, you want to know the pros and cons. Um, if you're going to have a physiological birth, you need to have a good birth team around you. You need to choose a place where you're going to be safe. You need to understand that childbirth is not dangerous in most developed countries. Like in the UK, you are 99.57% likely to have a straightforward, safe birth when nothing goes wrong, if you've had a healthy pregnancy. So you see, that is like, that's just as safe as getting in your car every day. Mm-hmm. Do you see, do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's the, just really understanding that childbirth is not a disease. It's not an illness. It's most of the time not dangerous. And you need to be in an environment where you're safe. And that is someone warm. All those things that increase uh, oxytocin release. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And as you said, you've been a doula for 18 years. Just, uh, yes. just a little bit of time. Um, yeah. I wondered, like, over that period of time, what have been, like, the main kind of common themes that you've seen occur 
in pregnancy and childbirth and postnatally? And have they changed um, as time has gone on for um, those common themes? Have they changed as we've as, as time has altered, I suppose? Well, I, I would say that in the beginning, for, for women themselves, or the, the people I've supported, it's always been the same kind of issues around worry about that it's not safe, you know, that something's going to happen. That, that theme was back when I started. But I'm, what I'm sensing, not from my clients in particular, but from the world, is that it's even more fear now. Mm-hmm. It feels like there's more fear in women that are pregnant, but also it's more fear in the NHS and in yeah. the system. So you have, we have, what well, I've definitely seen, we saw, I saw improvement, you know, delayed cord clamping, you know, when you, you, we started learning about how important it is for the baby to get all the blood from the placenta. We, th- that was so many good things. And then we started seeing this decline of midwifery support we have less and less midwives we have more and more midwives that start the training that actually don't complete the training or leave i see more and more midwife coming on on doula courses uh and the hospitals uh, i don't know who would do that <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I want to uh, and, and you you just have more and more worry in the in the in the hospitals about getting sued i think that's it about making mistakes about so we have a fear Fear in the people coming in and a big fear in the people working in the system. So that's what the major things I've seen, I would say. And how do you, how do you support that? Um, how do you support a woman who's feeling that fear? It, it's really hard. You have, to, you have to really investigate what is it exactly that you fear? What is your fear? Uh, and, and most of the time you can educate women then Mm-hmm. Uh, on because it's usually a lack of of understanding it's the lack of information and knowledge from an early age you know if yeah. we understood that we were mammals like all other mammals mm-hmm. and and were taught that i think that would give such a different outlook when you come to getting pregnant the things you would fear would maybe be to go to the hospital um, and feel scared that something is wrong because you've had to go to the hospital if, if that makes yeah. sense no, absolutely. Yeah. Fear, yeah the fear of that you're gonna die giving birth because that is so so extremely unusual for that mm-hmm. to happen you know and, and it's just comparing other things in life to childbirth you know in, in terms of safety like and we need to stop with all the headlines that it's scary. So no, I was about to say it's, it's a lot of that's got to come from media, hasn't it? That it's um, it's got to be sensational, and mm-hmm. um, and I think that's what what gets in people's head because so so few times do you hear positive stories. It's always the negative ones that get out, um, mm-hmm. and and you don't forget it. It stays there right at the back of your head until you need to think about it or don't, as it may be, and um, and then that's when the issues occur. Um, so. Kiki, you were instrumental in starting the But Not Maternity campaign, which originated with um, Holly Avis's Change.org petition, and then you mm-hmm. came on board. So the But Not Maternity campaign has been incredible. Um, can you talk about it? Because I'm just like, in awe of you, that what, <laughs> what you have achieved uh, with it oh. and how far it's spread um, and the impact it's having. Um, and oh. I don't think probably people realise that it's come from you. <laughs> well, that that doesn't really matter. It, what I wanted to, what we we wanted to do was really be a voice for all the pregnant people here in the UK. Well, in the world, because this is an issue everywhere with the restrictions in in maternity services and the the dreadful, sad things that so many women and couples had to go through in terms of not being able to be together like there's two people that made this baby most of the time and you know how how you can separate that and put all the responsibility of the woman to do this all on her own it's just so wrong but yeah so but not maternity started because we could see that all other restrictions were being lifted here you can go to the pub you could do all different things but you in maternity you still couldn't take your partner with you for scans you couldn't have them there for the whole of the labor and also they had to leave straight after the baby was born like within the hour so that's why we started the campaign and we one of my doula the doulas at the birth academy 
had contacted Holly to say, look, we, we've seen you started a petition. Instead of us starting a new one, mm -hmm. why don't we just use yours? Because we can help, you know, bring, bring numbers in. And at the time it was about 180,000 people had signed it. And now today we have over half a million people have actually signed it. And it, it literally in the week it doubled. Um, and yeah, we were just, I think the message was, it was the right time. Um, and I think it just really, people just really felt that, yeah, this is so wrong. Even people that weren't pregnant having babies were like, what, how can this be happening? Mm -hmm. You know, how can we put women through all these, all these terrible things? I mean, so we had some real good, within eight days, literally, um, we had NHS England come out with a new framework literally after we started the campaign and then we had mps come on board alicia kearns an mp who was who is pregnant she got 60 other mps to sign a letter to to support this like we need to remove restrictions and it was all going so well you know we had the spreadsheet set up with all the trusts and what was happening there putting pressure on everyone and then now lockdown has happened so I wanted to ask, so what's, um, mm -hmm. I've, I've seen you putting the feelers out to see what's going on and has anything else come from the new lockdown and have you, have you found any, any changes so far? We have, we have found changes. We have seen like lots of trust now uh, who had introduced two birth partners now only going back to one. We have seen trust stopping now all uh, support during scans during early labor, like inductions, uh, and also can't stay, you know, leave, can't visit, you know, can't, you, so a, a dad can't go and visit his baby and his wife or partner in the hospital. I mean, it's absolutely. And babies on special care units are only allowed to be visited by one parent. It's completely heartbreaking. It's, it's, it's how can you do this? So, so what, what, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm just quite cross. No, go ahead. Um, but has it come from, because obviously the lockdown is just, we're only two, day two in, um, to the two days into the new lockdown. Yes. Has it come from a government level that people need to start, that um, trusts need to start changing their protocols again? No. Or is it just, it's, so it's a trust decision? Yeah, it hasn't even come from NHS England. You know, no one has said that, you know, those frameworks set out on the 8th of September are what they should be working towards. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that the terrible situation here in the UK, which I had no idea, but specifically in England, is that the trusts are actually a law unto themselves. They don't actually have to do anything anyone tells them. So you can have the government telling them you need to do this. You can have NHS England telling them you should do this, but then you have the trusts themselves with their own little um, group of trustees or mm -hmm. directors or whatever they are. And they together with, we don't know who, you know, probably risk assessments and all these things. And then they apply that to the whole of the hospital. So, you know, it might make sense in other areas, to restrict footfall but this is very specifically couples people that live together coming in it's not just you know you wouldn't bring your whole family to come and see you after you've had a baby mm -hmm. and i understand what you wouldn't you could you can never do that you, mm -hmm. you don't tend to have children and lots of families on wards because of risk of any kind of illness so yeah that, the, the bottom line is they can do what they want and, and we can Slightly keep terrifying. shouting yeah. It is really terrifying. And that, that's why we all have to work, you know, the women themselves. And this is what's so difficult because it's so hard for women to speak up for themselves because they worry if I say something, maybe they won't like me. Maybe they won't look after me when I come in. Well, it's or so it's difficult because you're at your most vulnerable when you're pregnant, aren't you? Um, well, especially when you're going to be going into labor and you're, exactly. you know, your, your care is in the hands of somebody else. And if, you know, if you're blacklisted. Um, yes. I completely understand. So you're being the voice. Well, the, the, what we want to see is really the, how they do these assessments. Like, because it, human rights law very clearly states that any restrictions to women's human rights, which is to be able to have who you want there when you have a baby, that's already uh, a rule. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a right to private life and to have those people there that you want during childbirth. We want to see how 
how how they do in these calculations to say no it's safer to limit the spread of the disease to have just no one there in the beginning of labor compared to the impact this has on the woman on her mental health on bonding on clinical outcomes and i mean we know if women don't have a birth partner there they're more likely to be complications so what is more important like nothing is 100 percent safe ever it goes you know? completely back so we've gone full circle back to the the conversation about physiological birth exactly uh, and the importance of having a safe feeling safe having a supportive birth partner to allow yeah. your oxytocin to flow and if no one's there you're going to be terrified quite simply yeah. aren't you um so are they are they providing any answers as yet no when we ask on groups you know when we have hospitals go out and say oh we've just put this in no they just uh, what we're going to do this is our next step we're going to go under the freedom of information act we want to find out how many covid cases have they had in these units which have which they've used as evidence to say we have to shut we have to stop and change things mm -hmm. i can tell you that's probably zero cases and, and and with the ppe situation so you protective um you know equipment like mm -hmm. masks and why why can't we use that you know what it, what was the point of using that if it doesn't work you know why why can doctors um you know or and and midwives wear those things and a husband can wear those things too i mean it would limit the spread the thing is it will never 100 percent get rid of the spread because yeah. you can't nothing is a hundred percent so this is what's so frustrating it's like you know show us the facts because we should be evidence-based so show me the facts and how you calculated that this is the this is safest safest for everyone how do we know that it's not gonna it could be dreadful in terms of bonding in terms of the family unit in terms of postnatal illness and and long term damage done but i, I don't yeah it, it doesn't seem to be taken into account the stories coming out of the last few months are, are just devastating absolutely heartbreaking mm -hmm. and can you go back to the government will they or are they effectively hands tied now they've done their bit no i think i mean even boris johnson our prime minister on sunday when he talked about the lockdown said that they were going to make tests available and he mentioned maternity services, like rapid testing, so you can test people um, rapidly so that they women can have whoever they want, whenever they want with them. But that, that was a mention from him, Alicia Kearns have mentioned this more, but we, that is still, it, it needs to happen now. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, not gonna it happen now. It's gonna, it, like, how long is it gonna take? And it should be, also for people that are you know terminally ill and can't have people come and say their last goodbyes you know oh. it's cruel both ends of the spectrum you know if you're dying or you have or you're being born those both ends needs to have the support there and that's not happening and it's wrong it's inhumane i think it's inhumane i have to use a strong word here no, because go ahead it, it is is completely wrong the government is very busy with the lockdown and the rules and regulations that are around that but i'm hoping to hear back from alicia kearns with some more you know information um about how this is all going to look and what are we going to do but what can we do i mean there's doulas talking about or people not just doulas talking about demonstrating outside hospitals you know like oh. but, well that's difficult I mean, then because then you're all grieving together <laughs> and also yeah we can't do that that's against the rules we'll all get fined and yeah. it's not probably going to help our course much but so i'm not for that but it's like no. what do you do it's like a, it's like, the it's like how, how do you get heard yeah how, how do yeah. you get your voice heard and have you noticed any other parts of um, maternity services suffering like home births and things have they been stopped over yeah yeah they've, they've stopped home births in some areas um they've also said to to women if you have uh you can have one person here to support you and that's it if anyone else is in the house uh, you know looking after a child they have to stay there <laughs> it's just oh, like gosh. yeah but it's nothing's written down there's no policy this is just an interpretation of individuals working within the nhs um, and then you'll hear back from other doulas that went to a home birth. No one was wearing f face masks, not even the midwives. Uh, they were all working together. I know. So it's like, 
it's a crazy yes. world right now. <laughs> so what can people listening, what can they do to help support the campaign? Oh, if you can, yes, please, please go and sign that petition. If you go to the, there's a website, www.butnotmaternity.org, and they'll take you to a web page uh, where you can read what you can do. So if you live in the UK, uh, write to your MP. We have template letters to write. Uh, you just have to fill out your specific situation. We have template letters to write to the trusts. Again, fill in your specific situation. So they're not just a standard cut and paste. You have to do a little bit of work <laughs> yourself. Uh, and then also contact your doulas in your area. Doulas are, knows, they know what's happening in the trust. They can help you to get all the information you need to find out what your rights are. And you have all the rights. When you are pregnant, you should not worry about wanting things your way because it's very important that you do feel part of the birth process and that you feel that you had choices and that you, you were well supported because we know from so many studies, so this is not just me sitting here saying we should, it's, it's well documented in you know, Cochrane review about continuous support during labor is massive, massive research piece. Um, and it shows us that if women don't have birth companions or birth partners or partners through all this pregnancy, it usually leads to worse outcomes because stress is not being stressed all the time. It's going to impact on your health and that's going to impact on but your pregnancy mm -hmm. uh, on so many yeah. things. Yeah. Again, adrenaline. Mm -hmm. Well, I yeah. hope they know who they're fighting against. <laughs> I'm not giving up. We're we no. going down. We, we we, I think there's going to be some legal cases also with birthrights and aims, also looking at bringing some cases to court to say human rights have been breached and then we'll have cases. So we can say to the, you know, we can start threatening with legal action. So I think that's the only way we're going to be able to do it. It's just sad. It's really sad. It has to come to that. Um, it's mad. It's crazy. It's mad. Well, thank you for doing what you're doing and for not oh. giving up. And, um, and honestly, it's so impressive. Um, the reach you've managed to achieve and the, the signatures and has it gone to um, around the world has it reached other parts of the world as well i i believe so i mean i had i was contacted by some doulas in sweden that were wanting to start the campaign there um but i haven't seen how they've been doing i need to go and check but yeah i've i've seen people sign it from all over the world the petition and we've had support um from so many people and that that's what's making the difference you know everyone's supporting it mm -hmm. that's what's so wonderful mm -hmm. because we 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 need that we need everyone to to realize how important this is it's like the infrastructure of our society that's being of course impacted. it's just madness that it was ever put there in the first place that you could separate a husband and a wife or a, a man and a woman or a man and a man whoever whoever made the baby yeah. who was the baby's parents that, that would ever be separated because you are a yeah. unit and a family and and that's how you started and that's how you're birthing and that's how you'll go forward and to separate it at such an instrumental point is just devastating yeah it's absolutely mad thank you well, um, when we finished the, when I finished the podcast, I like to ask um, three questions if you're happy to answer. The I'll first try. one being, if you could have coffee, I'm really interested to hear this answer actually, Kiki. If you could have coffee um, or wine or G&T, whatever your tipple is, um, with uh, any other woman, who would it be? Do you know that is such a hard question because I have so many women I admire. Everyone, I think I admire women. Full stop. I think they're brilliant. But I think <laughs> when I think about it, I, I I think it has to be a woman called Astrid Lindgren, and she's a Swedish author. She wrote Pippi Longstocking. Okay. If, if she's probably one yeah. of her famous Astrid Lindgren, and she's obviously passed away now. But she is one of those women that just seems to have the most she's got the wildest imagination but also had a really really tough life in terms of being a, a woman having a a son she had to give up for adoption because you know it was in the days when you couldn't you know it was bad mm -hmm. if she was a woman having a baby and her story <laughs> is so interesting i would love to sit down she's just a real lovely funny 
interesting woman. I'd love to end up being like her when I'm in her 90s. She used to ring her sister. So they used to ring each other. And the first thing they said to each other was death, death, death. Okay, let's talk about something else now. Because they were so <laughs> they were so old. They knew they were going to be dying soon. So that, <laughs> it was just hilarious. I would love to sit down and have a, like share a bottle of wine with her. That would be hilarious. Absolutely. Then obviously you've been a mum for um, a few years now, but is there anything that you found yourself saying um, maybe as a younger mum or even now that your mum used to say to you? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, one thing when we eat dinner, when we're eating, I always say, yes, don't forget you can take more if you want more. <laughs> And it's so annoying because it used to really annoy me. I used to think, yeah, I know. I know I could take more if I want more. And my kids get really annoyed with me and I still say it. You still say it. It's just, just, it's it's just got to come out. Think, yeah. Like, yeah, don't, don't worry. You know, you can have more if you want more. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> As they throw a potato across the table. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um, are there, can you give us either as a doula or a mum or just a woman, is there any kind of life hacks that you could share that have worked for you? Well, that, yes, life hack, mother hack. Uh, I think you, as a mother, my biggest thing is, or actually in life, is to, it's not always right to do the easiest thing is usually more right to do the harder thing and, and what i mean by that is that sometimes it you know if it can be easy just to let your child get what they want in that moment in the shop when they're going mental and throwing themselves on the floor mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily the right thing to do it probably the harder thing to do is of course to pick that child up carry them out of the shop and leave all your shopping and take them home or take them out of the situation and I think that's with most things it, it's so easy to just continue doing the easy thing um, but that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do got you got you so mine would um would be uh one my mum said to me which is choose your battles just choose your battles so it's kind of balancing between those two isn't it like which sometimes let them have their way but for the important stuff uh perhaps don't because um, you're going to find yourself in a sticky situation later i'm sure you'll agree that kiki is a force to be reckoned with Birthing women of the UK are in a better position because of her campaigning. And trust me when I say, she won't give up. The stories that have come out of this year's lockdown for mothers are shocking and heartbreaking. We have to join together to stop this from happening again. Please, please visit the show notes for the links Kiki described to see how you can do your bit to help mothers, families and babies not be the ones to suffer and help stop the contradictions in how society is permitted to conduct themselves. Have a great week and I'll be back next Thursday.